Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. We're going to continue to worship in the Word. If you would open your Bibles, uh, we're going to continue to dig in our study of Luke. We're in Luke 20. We're going to start in verse 19. My name is Jonathan, and it's my honor to continue to worship with you. We're going to be starting in Luke 19 and going through verse 26. Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Try that again. Good morning. That's better. That's better. Y'all, y'all are, it's a little warmer out there than the first service. Y'all, y'all should be more awake and alive, ready to dive in the word. Amen. Oh, that was weak. All right, Mary. I'll have to depend on Mary's amens this morning. Um, it's Wednesday of Passion Week, where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, as Luke has told us, has come into Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's been teaching every day. And Luke said, the people, which I think would be right for us to understand as a pretty large group of people, masses in the temple because this is Passover week. So people from all over the known world have come to Jerusalem for the prescribed feasts. They're there. They're hanging on his every word, Luke says. And somehow within the next 48 hours, this sea of people is going to go from hanging on his every word to shouting, crucify him. How does that happen? Now, we live in a world where you can get canceled like that, right? I think things are a little bit different here, but here's, here's what we know. Jesus is going to go from enjoying favor with the people to being crucified right in the middle of Passover for one primary, ultimate reason. And here's the reason. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's in charge? God's in charge. The reason ultimately, finally, decisively that Jesus is going to go from enjoying favor to being crucified is because it was the will of God for it to happen. 
No one else is in charge. God is in charge. I'll keep reading verse 10. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. In the New Testament book of Acts, when the early church believers were threatened for preaching in Jesus' name, they, they, they huddle up together. I imagine in a, a gathering of saints a lot like this one, and they begin to pray and listen to their prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. They're praying, and they say, For truly, in this city, where are they? They're in Jerusalem. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's in charge, period. But there's sin involved. Does that make you squirm a little bit? God's ruling over this, but ultimately the reason that Jesus is going to go to the cross is because people are going to sin to put him there. And this is what we've talked about at Res before. When you read your Bible, if you're going to pay careful attention to Scripture, you're going to have to let the Bible develop a whole new category in your mind for you that God is the God who wills sin sinlessly. God is the God who in his sovereign wisdom... And only God can do that, by the way. Don't try it. God in his sovereign wisdom wills or allows sin and uses it to accomplish his good purpose and he's perfectly righteous in doing so. You don't believe me. Genesis, in the Old Testament book of Genesis, Remember Joseph and his coat of many colors? Remember that story? If you grew up in church, you remember you know, the flannel graphs and, and, and all that where you got Joseph in this you know, weird looking coat with its all kind of colors? His brothers, his 11 brothers, which him and his 11 brothers make up the forefathers of the tribes of Israel, right? His brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery because they were jealous. And through a series of events, Joseph finds himself second command in the world power of the day, Egypt, administering the resources during a terrible famine. And he actually ends up confronting his 11 brothers who sold him into slavery. And listen to what he said about it. Genesis 50, verse 20. He's looking at his brothers, Joseph is, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Did they sin? But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive, namely the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel from which Messiah would come should be kept alive as they are today. Suffice to say, the ultimate decisive reason Jesus is, is being heralded, will go from being heralded at least as a new significant prophet, if not Israel's Messiah, to being crucified in the middle of Passover is owing to the sovereign plan of Almighty God. Now, having laid that foundation, let's consider what sort of sin is God allowing, willing, using to accomplish his good purpose in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19 of Luke 20 again. <clears throat> the scribes, and the chief priests, so the religious elite in Israel, 
sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. I see three layers of sin in verse 19. Here's layer number one, hatred. The religious elite in Jerusalem hate Jesus. They are angry and they want to kill him. Luke says they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They want him gone. They want him dead. The religious folks. Why? Here's layer number two. They're in rebellion against God. Luke says they perceived that he told the parable against them. What parable? It's the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the wicked tenants. And I don't have time to go back over all of that, but here's a little bit of a summary of what the parable meant. God's vineyard, his vineyard, includes Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, the law of Moses, the feasts. Everything that's going on here is part of God's vineyard. But the religious leaders and really Israel as a whole throughout our history have been wicked tenants. They hate the son. And in the parable, the vineyard owner sends the son to collect what's due to him and they kill the son. Guess what they're going to do to Jesus? They're going to kill the son because they hate the vineyard owner. They don't want to be stewards. They want to be owners. They want things on their terms. They perceived he told this parable against them. And the point of the parable was God's going to take the vineyard away from wicked tenants and he's going to give it to others. Summary statement. They're in rebellion against God because is what Jesus up to a God thing? Absolutely. So their sin, first two layers, is that they hate Jesus. And the reason they hate Jesus is because they're in rebellion against God. Here's the third layer. It's pride. Luke says... They feared who? They didn't fear God. They feared the people. What they're all about, what they're primarily focused on is the preservation of their own prestige and power in the eyes of the people. This is rooted, their hatred and their rebellion against God is rooted where? Selfish pride. Folks, listen. There's only two paths in life that a human being can take. Only two. And even if you're not a church or a Bible person, if you think about it, I think you'll agree with me, there's only two options. And one leads to eternal life, the other to eternal death. Here's option number one. Worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either he's Lord or he's not. Either he is who he claimed to be or he's not. And if he is, then he is owed all our devotion, all our affection, all our allegiance, all our loyalty. Right? I mean, if he is that, then duh. That's what he deserves. And that path leads to life. Here's the other. Worship of self or pride. Worship of self is not only the religion of the atheist. All other world religions, when you boil them down and you get to the root, they are rooted in worship of self. The Christian gospel stands alone in this way. It is by grace and by grace alone 
that God-hating, rebellious, prideful people like us are transformed into worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by grace and by grace alone. Every other world religion, regardless of its deity or lack thereof, when you boil it down, at the end of the day, here's what they're going to say. This is how you merit. This is how you earn, and this is how you deserve. And at, again, at the end of the day, you get underneath that what's there. It's the worship not of Jesus, but of me. What I can do, what I can accomplish to earn and be counted among the good. Religious activity, it's possible for someone's life to be chocked full of religious activity and look good on the surface and underneath the root be hatred of God, rebellion against God, and selfish pride. Bradley, how is that possible? Just look at these religious elites in Israel, in Jerusalem. Their lives, listen, you talk about religious These guys are first-class religious people. And what's underneath them? What's at the bottom of them? They hate Jesus. They're in rebellion against God and what he's up to. And at the end of the day, what drives them is selfish worship of self, i.e. pride. So what do they do? Verse 20, chapter 20. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. It's been said that pride is the mother of all sins and I think that's true mainly because it leads to all other sins. In this case, their hatred of God fueled by their rebellion, fueled by their pride, has given rise to first-class hypocrisy, and they're dripping with it. They're fakes. They're actors. They're pretending. And what's their goal? Somehow, they got to get Jesus turned over to the governor. Now, who's the governor? Pilate. We know Pilate, right? Pilate's in town. He's not always in town. But this is Passover. All hands are on deck to keep the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So Pilate's there. And they've got to get him turned over to Pilate for two reasons. Number one, Rome, which rules, occupies Israel and Jerusalem, is in control ultimately. Though they allow the nations they occupy to to have some sense of self-rule, in this case, Israel... They were still allowed to have their priesthood. They were still allowed to have the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ruling class in Israel. To some degree, they could self-rule, but the shadow of Rome's dominance was always looming. They didn't have to look far to find it. And one of those ways is the ruling class in Israel could not condemn someone to death. Rome had taken away Israel's right to capital punishment. So if they want Jesus dead, somehow they're going to have to get Rome to do it. That's reason number one. 
Here's reason number two. Somehow, they've got to discredit Jesus. They can't just have him killed. He can't be a martyr. The people are hanging on his every word. So if they don't discredit him, if they don't expose him as a false prophet in the eyes of the people, killing him is only going to make things worse for them. So what do they have to do? They've got to at least get Jesus arrested. Killing him is preferable, but if they get him arrested, if if they can get him to say something or do something that's going to get Rome involved, if Rome arrests him, it's going to chop the head off the messianic hype around Jesus. Pilate's got to get involved. They've got to get the governor involved. Here's what they know. It's a brilliant scheme. Because what they know is that the general populace of the Jews, first century Jews, believed that Messiah would come and overthrow all rule, Rome included, and deliver the kingdom that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. In other words, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is who the people are believing him to be, in some way or another, he's got to be anti-Rome. He's got to take a stand. He's got to take the posture of a revolutionary. Otherwise, he's going to get discredited. Now, is Jesus going to overthrow all rule? Yes, one day. But he's not here to do all of that now. The kingdom has come near. One day it's going to come in its fullness, and the kingdoms of this earth will be the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ But Jesus isn't here to accomplish all of that in time right at this moment. But make no mistake, the kingdom has come near. The people don't know that. They don't understand that at this point. So if they can just get Jesus arrested by Rome, the people will conclude there's no way he's the Messiah. There's no way. So here's what they do. Verse 21. They asked him, teacher, boy, this is just dripping, isn't it? Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Here's their question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a tricky question on a couple of levels. One... The annual tribute that Jews had to pay to Rome, it's, it's not only a financial hardship, but it's just this constant reminder, this forced acknowledgement that they are ruled by a foreign overlord. It compromises the very essence of what it means to be a Jew and have fidelity to the one true and living God. I don't know that we can possibly fathom how offensive it must have been to have to pay taxes to Rome. We're the people of God, for crying out loud. So this is a tricky question. Not to mention the fact that failure to pay this tribute was equivalent to sedition against Rome. And anyone who looks to be committing sedition against Rome, Rome's going to deal with swiftly. 
So it's almost like they've already put Jesus between a rock and a hard place, right? Because if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to, to Caesar, if he, if he simply says, yeah, Caesar has the right, we should pay the tax. If that's all he says, then he's going to be considered a Rome sympathizer and he's going to be discredited in the eyes of the people. But if he says no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, guess what's going to happen? Rome's going to arrest him and probably kill him because he's guilty of sedition. He's between a rock and a hard place on the surface. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. And I don't know if that was some sort of supernatural perception that Jesus had or if he just picked up on the slimy compliment in verse 21. Either way, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. That's the simple answer. It's Caesar's. There's an image on the coin of Caesar. But he also mentions the inscription. On one side, the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side was an inscription that read, Pontifus Maximus, meaning the highest priest. I said, it's hard for us to fathom how offensive this must have been for the Jews to pay taxes. Imagine a first century Jew and at the very core of your DNA is you are the people of God, chosen by God to worship Yahweh, and you're having to pay Roman taxes to a guy who claims to be the son of a divine and the highest priest in the land. This is, this is crazy. And Jesus is simply pointing out the obvious, whose image and whose inscription is on this coin. It's Caesar's. And I have to think that these spies at that point, as Jesus points out the obvious, are thinking to themselves, we got him. We got him. He's got to say yes or no. And either way, we win. We got him. Keep in mind, Jesus has been in the temple for a few days now, teaching every day about the kingdom of God. Jesus, how in the world are you going to get yourself out of this? Because how could the coming of the kingdom how could that even be possible given the current Jewish situation of being occupied and ruled by Rome? That doesn't even make sense. We got him. And the people listening to this, the people in the crowd, have to be thinking to themselves on the edge of their seat as well, what in the world is he going to say? But then he drops the mic. Verse 25. He said to them, render that word means to give back. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. He's literally saying, give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And the sentiment I looked this up in the Greek. I studied the original language in great detail this week, and here is what I think the sentiment is, and this is incredibly theological. If Caesar wants some of his little coins back, whoopity-doo. I think that's the sentiment. 
Whoop-de-doo. It's inconsequential because he can put his face on a coin and claim to be whatever he wants to claim to be, but that doesn't make it true. That doesn't mean he's in charge. That doesn't mean the kingdom hasn't come. That doesn't mean, what was the question that opened this chapter? They come to Jesus and they're like, by what authority are you doing this? Turning the tables over, throwing out the money changers, teaching about the kingdom in the, in the temple, in the middle of our tradition, in the middle of our Passover. Who gave you the right to do this? The question was not whether or not Jesus has authority. He obviously has authority. The people are hanging on his every word. But Caesar's not in charge. Caesar's not God. God is God, and God owns Caesar. I think that's the implication. Give back to Caesar that which is his. But give to God that which is God's. And what's God's? Everything. It all belongs to him. He's owed everything. This is why I say the Christian gospel stands alone because The point of this whole thing that we call the Christian life is not that we earn anything and we get celebrated. Because you know what? Listen, if you think about it, if the end point of all of this was us and what we achieved, that's a lesser joy. And you know that. I don't have to convince you of that because here's what you know. The greatest joy you experience is admiration. Not praise of self. I can prove it to you. Go stare at yourself in the mirror and taste that joy versus staring at your grandchildren as they grow up and become young men and young women and you see their talents and their beauty and their, their, their skills and their personalities begin to flourish. And tell me that's not a greater joy, admiration. So what, joy, what greater joy could there possibly be than to admire the God of heaven and earth in all his glory. To behold his beauty and his worth. The greatest good in the world is the worship of Yahweh because it puts his glory on display and it leads to the greatest joy that any human being could taste and that is the savoring of the glory of the almighty God who rules all, including little Caesar. If what Jesus is doing is a God thing, if if this is a God thing, if the kingdom of God has indeed come near in the person of Jesus, here's what that means. It means that all other claims of rule are relativized under the absolute dominion of God, of Yahweh, the one who rules the universe. So, give back to Caesar his little coins and give to Yahweh your worship, your devotion, your allegiance, your loyalty, the seat of your affections because he's worth it and that's the only path that leads to life. The worship of you 
only leads to death. You know, God forbid that one day somebody gets elected in Washington, puts their face on our currency, and writes inscriptions on there claiming to be divine or son of a divine and the highest priest in the land. Can you imagine that? God forbid that happens. I don't think it'll happen in our lifetime. But if it did, you know what we should do? Give them back some of their little coins. Give them some of what they made that they want back. But we will never give them our worship. We'll never give them our absolute devotion. I love this country. I'm thankful. Do you know, you, you consider all the, the dysfunction and division and what's going on in our political and social economic climates. If you zoom out, regardless of where you lean, here's what we know to be true. The kingdoms of this earth rise and fall. Where is Rome? Where is Caesar? Where are his coins? You know, the Roman Empire's in ruins. Caesar's in a grave. And if you looked hard enough, I don't know this for a fact, you might be able to find some of his little coins in a museum somewhere. But where's Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 21 of Ephesians 1. Look at this. Far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. If you were to notice that, the, that phrasing in, in, in Paul's letters as a whole, what you realize is that he's not just talking about human authority. He is including human authority, but he's talking about every power, every rule, every authority, every dominion, even the ones that we can't see. He is far above it. And, put that back up there, please. Far above all rule and authority, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's where Jesus is. Caesar's in the grave. The Roman Empire's in ruins. Coins might be in museums. Jesus is seated above all rule and authority. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? It means we don't fear. I thought this was just a question about taxes, Bradley. No, it's bigger than that. It's a question about authority. And it's a question about where our worship is directed. And saints, we know that. Our worship is given to Almighty God, to His Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the question at hand. And, and for some of you, that may not be settled yet. Where does your worship? You will worship something, you will worship someone. But there's only one who's seated above all rule, power, and authority. And, and listen, by grace and grace alone, God-hating, rebellious, prideful people like us get transformed 
into worshipers of this one who sits above all rule and authority. And you know what that means for us? I'm gonna read you what might be one of the most shocking verses in all the Bible, if you're paying attention. Because I think it's possible to read this and, and just think that it's talking about some ethereal, spiritual reality that doesn't really have any implications for us. And I, I don't, but probably a metaphor. It's not real. But if you pay attention to the flow of thought in Ephesians 1 and 2, and you first consider that this Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, above all rule and authority, for Paul to make this statement, it is absolutely shocking. It might even be hard for us to wrap our heads around. Here it is, Ephesians 2, verse 6. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. What? I don't think that's a metaphor. I don't think that that's some kind of just poetic language that Paul wrote to just sort of make us feel good. I think that's real. I don't think the, that heaven is trillions of light years out in the cosmos somewhere, out of reach. Because what did Jesus teach? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. It's within reach. That's what Jesus announced. He didn't go around flashing his God card and saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the second person of the triune God. Watch this. No, he, he came and he taught. And the Bible says when people heard him, they said, we've never heard anything like this. The kingdom has come near. And lo and behold, as he taught that, as he proclaimed that, there were these little demonstrations and tastes that followed in his wake that proved the kingdom had come near. Namely, blind eyes opened, lame people walked, and dead people came back to life. Kingdom has come near. I don't think heaven is trillions of light years away. I think it's right here in a dimension that we can't see. And Jesus is seated at the place of highest honor and authority. And we don't sit in the same seat, but those of us who have been transformed by grace to be worshipers of this Jesus, we are seated with him. Far above all rule, power, and authority, and above every name that has ever been named, we are his people we are the sheep of his pasture. We are citizens of his kingdom that will never end. Amen. So when Rome or Caesar or Washington, D.C. does their thing and it ruffles our feathers, what do we do? I'm not saying that we don't care. I'm not saying that those things don't affect our lives. But I love the passage that, Jane, that Stephen read from James when we started this service. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you face trials of many kinds because you know. And those trials might be Caesar is demanding tribute. And he's put his face on the coin and he's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be our high priest and he's not. You're citizens of the kingdom. That won't be taken away from you. So give him back some of his piddly little coins. Whoopity do. But give to God that which belongs to him. That is our worship. The seat of our affections. That is our devotion. That is our allegiance. You know what? Christians, if they chop our head off for it, to depart and be with Christ, it's far better. That's when we'll fully realize we taste it, we sense it, but we'll fully realize what it means that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So as we come to the table this morning, we're coming to the Lord's table. Let me say a couple of things. Number one, the Lord's table is for worshipers of the Lord Jesus. If you're not a worshiper of Jesus, that's okay. You don't have to feel pressure to come and take the elements and receive communion because this is an act of worship. And the Bible says that we must discern the body properly. So don't treat this lightly. Don't treat it as just a, a formula or a formality that the church does when the, the saints get together. This is, this is important. This is powerful. And it's for worshipers of Yahweh. Second thing I want to say to you, as you come, saints, come worshiping. Come praising God that you, by grace and by grace alone, have become a worshiper of the only one who could deliver you from your hatred, from your rebellion, and from your selfish pride. And he did that. Paul says it this way in Colossians. He took us dead people, spiritually dead people, walking, talking corpses, and he made us alive. And he did that by canceling the record of debt, our sin, that stood against us. How did he do that? How could you just cancel that? God, how could you do that and still be just? He nailed it to his son on the cross. And he rendered it paid. Paid in full. We didn't earn anything, did we, church? We don't deserve anything but wrath. But Jesus, I love saying this. I know I say it a lot. God treated Jesus as if he lived our life. Because what are we? Prideful, critical, selfish. Apart from grace, God-hating people. He treated Jesus like he lived our life so that he could treat us like we had lived Jesus' life. And that is the best news in the world that you get to get set free from you. And you get to become a participator in the greatest good in the universe, the worship of the living God. And you get to experience the greatest joy possible, which is the enjoyment of the glory of God. I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you to come to the table. Let's stand. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. 
please visit resfaith.com. That's rezfaith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.